This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. Yiddish theatre was a rich storytelling art wherever substantial Jewish communities supported it at the beginning of the last century. So why should we be surprised at its re-emergence in the form of TV? You make it sound like I was in prison. Weren't you? No, but I left without telling anyone. Why did you leave? God expected too much of me. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For committed podcasters, coronavirus provides unprecedented opportunities to get the very best guests. I mean, you know they're all at home, right? It's where NGO Monitor's founder was, locked down in Israel, and he gave me a vivid snapshot of the challenges of human rights, nations practicing so-called soft power, and his own life countering anti-Israel NGOs. Professor Gerald Steinberg, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's a pleasure to be welcomed. Thank you. Almost no journalists make the NGOs the story, but they should because they're very powerful actors. They have a lot of influence on how the uh, world perceives the conflict, but they, they're always immune. And that goes back to what we call the halo effect, this view that these are wonderful people, ideologically neutral, politically neutral, that to volunteer to make the world a better place for human rights. That's uh, just so long been shown to be false, and yet it, it still dominates the the the, um, the image that we see in the media. So all I can say is everything you said and more so. And then today's distinguished guest, who I was also able to track down in her Berlin home, it's Deborah Feldman, author of Unorthodox, on which the brilliant, gripping, heartrending Netflix miniseries adapted by director Maria Schrader and writer-director Anna Winger is based. And action! It's huge. It's mind-blowing. I have to keep reminding myself that they're not real. It's like a historical movie, actually, what we're doing here. Like, this is 90% of my filming experience here. It's like this. To come over here to do a show set in Williamsburg, uh, to do it in Berlin, it's kind of a, you know... It plays with my head. A series in Yiddish, for me also personally, I think it's a great thing. They may be dealing with a language that no one understands, they may be dealing with costumes and rituals that no one understands, but the essence of what's happening, that's universally understood. This very beautiful and unique story that shows kind of like both worlds. I don't think it's a story about the existence of God or something like that. It's more about the right to have your voice. And people like me never really had that opportunity. 
We never saw ourselves reflected back in the stories being told in popular culture, so we didn't really know how to create our own stories. I think this is the first show ever to accurately portray the Hasidic community. These are real people, and their experiences are, are very universal and very relatable. When the community watches it, and there's somebody like me watching it, and see that this girl lived exactly like she lives, and she was able to muster the courage to follow her dreams, maybe this girl can too. Disillusioned with her life, a 19-year-old woman named Esti Shapiro, played by Shira Haas, who you may remember as young Ruhama in Stizel, runs away from her arranged marriage and her ultra-Orthodox community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and moves to Berlin, where her estranged mother lives. She tries to adapt to a secular life, but when her husband Yankee, Amit Rachav, discovers that Esti is pregnant, he embarks on a journey to Berlin to find her. Even if Esti's Berlin experience is fictional, all the key facts of the story are the same. All of them. And though 600 miles apart and down the line, we had more conversation than interview. In the show, Esti's mum's family comes from London, and Deborah's, well, hers was from London and Manchester. She's making coffee with the window open, so listen closely for some vivid bird song down the line. I stayed with, uh, with an aunt and uncle, um, and uh, I didn't really see much of, of London the way tourists would see it. I saw Stamford Hill, but it was, it was interesting nonetheless, um, and I hope to be able to return one day when travel restrictions are lifted, if they're ever lifted. Uh, yes, a different kind of travel restriction to the one that you grew yeah. up with. Correct. Um, yes. So, whenever you uh, are ready. Uh, okay. Yeah, I just, I just, I gonna, like, I'm just going to steam the milk no, for my I, cappuccino. I, I like I, the sound I take effects. My coffee seriously. Yeah, I take my coffee very seriously in the morning. I, at the moment, I'm in the need of a lot of caffeine because I'm, I'm just uh, juggling a lot of these talks. Um, and you know, and talking all day is more exhausting than people realize it is. And you would know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, when I'm not broadcasting, I like to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can very much understand the sentiment there. Okay, so I'm almost done. I'm just getting a nice froth going. I, I really should start a coffee podcast, right? I mean, all the sound effects. Um, I, have, I have to say, this is uh, working very nicely as an introduction to the interview. An, oh, un, an unexpected benefit. Yeah, something atmospheric, right? The atmospheric <laughs> always helps. Um, I mean, you know, life has really been reduced to the little joys as well. I mean, right? The, it's, it's the small things that matter now. Believe me, this is one of the great shake-ups of the coronavirus, that we should all come out yeah. of this a little bit more humble. I, I think so. And um, considering I also come from a, a world that, you know, willingly closed itself off and deprived itself from many great joys, I, I, I have experience with that kind of appreciation of, you know, of, of trying to find happiness in a reduced version of life. Which is a question okay. that I'm going to ask you a little bit later on about ah, lovely, um, lovely. humility and some of the decisions that Esty made in the mm. show. Uh, because yeah. in the middle of this podcast, what I'm going to urge my audience to do is to stop the podcast if they've not seen the show. Oh, and for those okay. who have, like it's like a spoiler alert. I want you to interpret some of uh, what you presented that's that's a good idea. Yeah, I can I can understand that. All right, so just rinsing that machine off. That's the last step. Make sure it doesn't clog. This does answer one of my questions about um, what parts of New York do you miss? Oh, uh, that is actually a tough question because there is not much about New York City that I miss. 
um, I remember in that in the brief period that I was I was forced to live there because um, it was the only chance. My lawyer insisted it was the only chance for me to get a a liberal judge to hear my case. So a judge that wasn't in the pockets of the community, and I was forced to live there for this period of about three years. And I um, I remember thinking um, that New York was like all of the cities in the Bible stories I had been told as a child, stories about Sodom and Gomorrah, stories about the Tower of Babel, you know, stories about cities where the people got arrogant and full of hubris and thought they were going to be exceptions to all the rules and that there was no way to really limit them. And that these stories always ended with some kind of natural disaster as a punishment from God. And I remember thinking, this is going to happen to New York one day. It's just a matter of time. And no one, I mean, New York barely survives as a city as is. And so at the moment, there's really just gratitude that I'm, I'm living in a city that is probably doing better than most in current circumstances. We have, um, you, know, you know, reassuring reports from the news that, you know, our, our health system is not yet overwhelmed and, and doesn't look like it will be. So in that sense, I really think I'm in the right place. This is amazing how the world is being tipped over. Who are the most prized people in society? We are banging saucepans for care workers, but they are the kings and queens of our society very suddenly. And we can only hope that that lasts, that appreciation. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pessimistic because I think that our appreciation tends to fade as soon as we don't have a reminder. Um, but I, I do think that the effects of this crisis will last for some time. I think longer than we would like it to. And I think in this period of, of so-called recovery or of this period of easing out of the crisis is going to be a period in which we re, you know, rethink a lot of things, rethink a lot of values. And, and maybe this will cause us to make long-term changes to the way we live our lives on an individual sense, which will then add up to a collective sense. Well, this is a very interesting adjunct to the main interview, Deborah Feldman. Thank you very much and welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. Unorthodox on Netflix and inspired by your autobiography has taken your experience to a huge new audience. It is your story, Deborah. You left a Hasidic community in New York for an uncharted life in Berlin. How's it going? Oh, it's uh, well, it was going very well until recently. <laughs> <laughs> but it was certainly I felt like I worked uh, very hard for a very long time to build that life. And I'd only just managed to achieve it uh, before it uh, became quite ephemeral and slipped through my fingers. Um, but, you know, it, it took longer, obviously, than it did in the show, because there's really no way to show a process of, of leaving and finding your new bearings, um, you know, in, in four hours. It's not, it's not possible. If you talk to anyone who's left my community, they're, um, the one thing that we always agree on is that it, it takes forever and a lifetime. I mean, it does. It takes forever. Um, but I, you know, I, I kept my expectations quite small, probably based on the fact that I had observed the attempts of other people to leave and I had observed the way these attempts failed. And I decided that if I was going to aim for something, I was going to aim for something small, not too big. And I think because I kept my expectations small, they were um, small, they were continuously um, sort of uh, uh, sprung. I mean, in, in a way that life just burst my expectations wide open and gave me new ones. Um, and yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's a helpful attitude, you know, to not expect much and then to celebrate every small achievement. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, for the purposes of the drama, Deborah, there are some quite significant changes, particularly in our heroine Estes Berlin experience. Could you just highlight some of the key differences? What's real in the show and what isn't. For example, they talked about your family being from London and Manchester. That bit's true. Uh, yes. But um, the mother living in a same-sex relationship, I, I'm wondering... That's also true. Oh, that's, that's true too. True. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So okay. I, th- I, think, I think that the actual, you know, like the details that, that form um, the narrative construct are the same. Um, the details that are changed are actually quite superficial. Um, and we agreed upon that. And before I even answer the questions of what's true and what isn't, I, I would like to, if you would allow me, to sort of go a little bit more into the backstory of how the series came to be, because I do think that's interesting. Um, So I moved to Berlin at the end of 2014. And one of the things that's quite magical about Berlin, because it's a city full of people who come from elsewhere, you know, people who very rarely have roots in the area, um, the story has a kind of, um, uh, the, the, the city has a kind of very open feeling to its society, a feeling of that anyone can come and anyone can go. And I say that because in cities like London, Paris, and New York, despite the fact that they're attractive to all sorts of um, internationals, they do t- tend to have like internal structures, which are difficult to break into. People people have, you know, um, formed social groups and these social groups are pretty sort of established. And it's not that easy to find your, your group of friends when you move to a place like Paris or London. Whereas in Berlin, you can pretty much make friends instantly. And I know that sounds unrealistic. I know that it can look unrealistic in the series, how quickly Esty finds her niche. But it really is true that within a week of moving to Berlin, I had a group of friends. And, and I did everything with this group of friends. And this group grew and grew as time went on. I had established this tradition with this group of my friends because I couldn't leave the house in the evening because I had a small child. I would host these dinners, these uh, dinners at my apartment. And people would come and they would bring other people and they would always bring something. And at some point, people started bringing films with them to, to sort of project onto my living room wall and watch together. So I had this entire cultural life of Berlin in my apartment. And one of the films that a friend of mine ended up bringing was a documentary film called Oma and Bella by this uh, Berlin Jewish filmmaker who lives in L.A. today named Alexa Karolinski. And the documentary film is about um, the friendship between her grandmother, a Holocaust survivor, and her best friend. But through this friendship, you really um, learn about three generations of a Berlin Jewish family and the way that things have changed for each generation and the way that, that there is this struggle to, to sort of be loyal to the past but also to live in the present. And the documentary touched me to an extent that I was not prepared for because I completely identified with the relationship between the documentary filmmaker and her grandmother who also spoke Yiddish and who who kind of ran her household the way my grandmother uh, had run hers. And I myself had been extremely close with my grandmother. She was the only really loving person in my life. And so I remember sitting in the living room with, with all of these new friends in my life watching this film and just bawling my eyes out Mm. and none of them really understood you know the extent of why I I felt so touched but you know shortly after I met the filmmaker because she you know she splits her time between Berlin and and LA and then shortly after that I met Anna Winger who's an American living in Berlin for the last 15 years I would say who had done the series you know Deutschland 83 and 86 and and I, I I got it into my head that if I got these two women together 
that they would represent the ideal blend of perspectives to adapt my book into, uh, you know, to the screen. Because I wanted somebody with, you know, with a skill on the level that Anna has, you know, sort of, you know, very big picture, you know, the ability to bring something to a, to a massive audience and to translate something so that it can be understood by anyone, regardless of where they come from. But at the same time, I wanted to capitalize on what I had seen in Alexa's film, this ability to go into this like incredible amount of detail and make something feel really authentic and, 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 and just sort of like opening up all these layers of meaning. And I thought if I just get these two women to the same table, what can come out of that is something you know, enormous, but also detailed at the same time. And so I came to them and I said, why don't you guys work together and adapt my book? And they laughed, you know, the first time I suggested that, um, you know, it was just like, what? You know, it was just out of the blue. But, you know, every time we'd meet again, because we became close friends, you know, it became less and less of a joke and more and more serious. And I started realizing that the idea had taken root in their heads, you know, against all odds. And, and every time they bring it up, I realized that they're actually thinking about it. And so over the space of two, three years, it went from being an offhand joke to something very serious. And then they sat down with me and said, Deborah, if we're really going to do this, we need to talk about how it's going to happen. And we, may, we need to make sure that before we sign any contracts, because we're friends, that we're all on the very same page about how this is going to work. And one of the things we agreed on very early on, unanimously, was that the story that comes to the screen needs to diverge from my own story, particularly as it refers to my present life. And there are many reasons for that. I think, um, you know, the, the, uh, the artistic reason is simply that some things that work well in literature don't work well on the screen. And that's something everyone knows who works in TV. But there was also the desire to um, allow me to have a private life currently, just because I wrote my memoir doesn't mean I'll be writing memoirs till I die, right? I mean, I wrote my story. I'm very proud that I wrote my story. And on the other hand, you know, 10 years had passed. And in those 10 years, you know, the group of people who'd left had grown from something, you know, like around 40 to 50 people to thousands. I mean, they can no longer be counted. And we understood that we needed to tell a story in which other people like me, other people who had left, should also be able to find themselves, to tell a story that was more representative of the general experience of leaving. And this is why we also had other people join um, the team that had left the community to sort of consult and add their perspective so that we could create something multi-layered. So let's talk about the story itself. It's about Esty, who took piano lessons from a non-Jewish teacher in the neighborhood who helped her escape her tight-knit community. Her husband, Yaakov, played by Amit Rahav, discovers an empty house where he was expecting to see his wife prepare for Shabbos, but she's suddenly making a run for it to the airport in Berlin. Add to the drama the Erev, which is broken, and she's trying to scramble her way through other young mummies saying good Shabbos to her, and she's making a run for it and hiding away. That real drama of escape um, is a real part of episode one, which was so yeah. unnerving. Yeah, no, I think it's amazing the way they open the series with that really like intense, um, you know, uh, in, in German, there's this really good word for it that I think cannot be translated. It's called Fallhöhe. It's like starting from a place of such high stakes. So, will you help me? Your ticket, your passport. Good luck in Berlin. Where are you from, Esteem? 
New York, never been anywhere else. And I think that the reason for that is that the way TV works, that you really have to grab the viewer's attention within the first 10 minutes in order to kind of have them invest in the rest of the story, which is really, really different from how books work. Because I think books kind of very slowly tease you and seduce you into the narrative. And people who tend to go towards books with a very different attitude, they invest so much more time and patience and concentration. Whereas, you know, watching TV is, is an act of seeking comfort. You need to immediately suck them into the heart of the story. And that's something that Anna, uh, you know, Anna Winger above uh, all really understood, you know, based on her experience. It's something that she was able to do well, you know, where Alexa brought all that attention to detail. Anna was like, how are we going to, you know, immediately grab the viewer's attention and not let them go. And I think that's something she did well. And it was just a taster of the action to follow because, in a sense, it gets going as well in the German capital to which Yakov and Satmar bad boy Moshe uh, has been dispatched to reclaim the community's errant daughter. And uh, just a little bit of a, a spoiler here because I think it adds uh, to those who haven't watched it. So I'll let this one um, stay in. She's pregnant as well. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because I, you know, I uh, had similar difficulties getting pregnant. Um, and that, you know, that part of the series is very much based on truth. And certainly as soon as I was pregnant, I understood I needed to get out. But of course, it wasn't as easy for me. And I ended up leaving once my son uh, was just barely three years old. Um, so that's the difference. She's already on her way out while she's pregnant. Um and, uh, you know, of course, that has also changed her value to the community. You know, women without children or without, um, you know, a, you know, fetus in the womb are are less valuable. You know, they're important, but they're less valuable than than women who are already on the way um, towards reproduction and towards, uh, you know, expanding the community's uh, numbers. Um, so in that sense, uh, what I found very interesting about that storyline is the comparison between someone like Esti and someone like Moisha, because Moisha is the bad boy and he's got apparently his own history of having left and come back. And the community is indeed full of, of what, what we could call marginal figures, figures who've never quite fit in, but have never quite made it on the outside either. And yet men are given so much more freedom on those margins than women are. With women, it's, it's just much more black and white. Um, women need to be more intensely controlled. And so whenever you follow the, the stories of women who've left, they're often much more dramatic um, than the ones uh, of men who often find that they can spend a decade or more simply floating on the periphery of the community. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Gould. Were they real payout that he had on the side of his head? Because some of them were uh, were placed on, weren't there? Yes. So um, we we had this incredible uh, makeup department, right? And and there there is this moment in the making of documentary that follows the series where Anna says uh, the joke on the show was that the men needed so much more makeup, so much more hair and makeup than the women. Um, that was that was really intense. I remember visiting the trailers where they would just work on the men's beards and payout. I mean. 
that was like, that was the most intense part of the show, right? Making the men look authentic and a lot of effort and a lot of care and attention and energy was devoted to that. Because Jeff um, says it was his life story. He said, look, this yes, is who I was. Correct. So yeah. um, he was going back to where he came from to act this part. Very much so. I mean, Jeff and I know each other also since 2014. And I, I heard his story uh, up close and, and personally way before this series was ever going to be a reality. And, and for Jeff, um, who, who for a very long time worked on reinventing himself in the outside world and kind of denying his past, it was a very emotional return for him. It was very empowering and cathartic, um, especially because after he had left, he himself had been chased by Moisha-like characters. So to try, try to find his way into a character like that was, was a very intense mm. emotional experience for him. But as you can see in the show, in terms of his beard and his payas, they're designed to look like the payout of someone who's returned. So someone who might have cut them off at some point and had to regrow them. Because as you see, they're shorter than the payout of other people uh, in his uh, peer group. That's so interesting. I love that. And uh, Ellie Rosen was the go-to guy for the advice on site. And I noticed a little in-joke being such a fan of the <laughs> episode because I noticed on his screensaver... The great mm. Rov was, in fact, Ellie Rosen. Correct, correct. <laughs> so he's like the grand, Ellie, the grand Rov of an orthodox. Yes, Ellie, Ellie Rosen also played the rabbi, the one who pronounced the blessing at the wedding and the one who advised the family. So he did, you know, he, he was a little bit of a jack of all trades on set. <laughs> a Yaakov of all trades. Yes, yes, a Yaakov of all trades. If you had Jacob, that's right. <laughs> it's funny. Um, no, but it was actually Ellie, Ellie has an amazing story of his own. And I th also, he, I think he brought some of, so much of his own emotional experience to the characters. Um, and he imbued them all, I think, with so much empathy and um, integrity. Um, it was really amazing to get to know. I hadn't known him before because these days there are just way too many people who've left and he had left after I had. I mean, our paths had never crossed before and it was so incredible. One of the things that I found so moving on this set was how many um, other like ex-Hasidic people I encountered who I just had never heard of before. And I know that sounds random, but just the idea that there can be someone who'd left that I hadn't heard of is such a big deal for me because when I was young, we knew all of them by name. There just weren't enough, you know, to lose sight of them. And, you know, when I was a child, I had heard of maybe three to four people. And then later I knew all 42 of them. And, and just the fact that there are now so many thousands and they turn up on this set out of the blue from all over the world and they tell me their stories. And I, and I just realized, okay, if, if we don't know every single story anymore, then this has become a movement. Wow, this is all great stuff. Now, what I found about the Netflix show is it didn't say that secular life in Berlin was better than the orthodox life of New York. In fact, some of the dialogue between her new Berlin friends, the so-called sophisticated orchestra people and her trip to the nightclub actually looked a bit uncomfortable. Um, the ignorance of her friends to Shira Haas's life was, was actually there to be demonstrated. You, you weren't judgmental about the old life against the new. Berlin life isn't better than New York yeah. Satmar life in the show. I mean, certainly we were trying to juxtapose the two in such a way as to show the contrast. But the story was never about leaving one world for the preference of another. The story is about one woman trying to find her own way to live a life that feels authentic and um, sort of consoling for herself. And 
she needs to find a way to do that. And so it's just more likely for her to be able to do that in that other outside world. But in no way is the illusion being transmitted that this other outside world is some ideal fantasy. It has its own share of difficulties and hypocrisies and ignorance. But yet it cannot be ignored that this is the world that is going to offer her a chance to be anything other than what her community has decided she should be. And indeed, her throwing off her scheitel in the Lake Advance, where the Germans implemented the final solution. Oh my goodness. That was, yeah, it's, it's that was agonizing. Intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I moved to Berlin so many years later, um, and uh, I took off my scheitel already in, in, you know, at college, at university. But even then, I won't forget that moment because, you know, my classmates had only recently found out that I was even wearing a wig. And the day I came into class without it, I mean, people people screamed, you know, they, they understood uh, what it meant for me. Um, and it was it was a very intense experience. And it I have to say that uh, it didn't get old for a while. So I, I remember just being very sort of attached to my hair for many years and refusing to cut it because it felt like I had worked so hard, hard to, to earn that right to have my hair again. Nowadays, I'm a little bit more relaxed, I have to admit. But <laughs> you know for a long time it it felt it still felt special and it's amazing to hear that this is the story not just of yourself but a number of people who've left the ultra orthodox communities of the big cities now netflix's unorthodox keeps the name of your memoir on which it's based but it's quite different in mode to your book strapline uh, being the scandalous rejection of my hasidic roots so, Although I have to admit to you that I did not choose that subtitle. <laughs> really? Uh, it's a bit like newspaper journalists who say, don't blame me for writing the headline. I didn't write that bit. Un unfortunately, that, that is true. I mean, I was very young when I sold my book and I was a nobody, right? I had no resume. I had never published anything before, not even a short story. Um, and everybody kept telling me, you know, you're 22. You're lucky to even have a publisher that wants to take you on. I had had 25 rejections from other publishers. Um, so it really felt like I was being given that last chance. And everyone said to me very clearly, you don't really have much choice here. You need to trust people who know better than you. And so many, many decisions were made, which were probably smart commercial decisions, I'm sure, um, you know, that I didn't really have a say in. And I, you know, I, you learn to live with that. Um, this is, I think, the cost of, of accomplishing something like this when you're very young and you're inexperienced. Um, but it was not a subtitle that I would have chosen myself or, or did choose myself. And yet I'm not resentful because I do think that, like when you see it with the Netflix series, sometimes you need to... Um, kind of open a story that normally would be very closed to, to a bigger audience. And to do that, you need to find ways to access that audience. And sometimes that entails sacrifices. So that brings on the next question, which is, were you able to maintain a control of the Netflix version of your life? I actually had no desire to have any control because I knew um, before going into this, you know, I knew these women for years and I, uh, I, I adored them. I admired them as people and as artists. And I had absolute confidence and trust in them. And so I was, always, I was really able to sort of like lift, you know, lift my hands, surrender all control, because I knew that I respected these women as artists and I wanted them to have complete creative freedom, just like I would have wanted to in their position. And so there was never any desire or attempt to have control, which was a beautiful experience on its own, being able to trust someone enough to, to surrender that. 
Although I, I will admit that I was, of course, very intensely emotionally involved in the entire process because you cannot put a friendship on pause just because a TV series is being made. And so every time something would happen or a decision would have to be made, um, you know, Alexa and Anna would, would call me or they would speak to me. And I was always invited to come to the set, which I did whenever I had time. Um, and so in that sense, I, I, I saw the process happening, you know, from a very close perspective, but I didn't try to impact it at all. And yet I'm sure I did because I was involved um, and was able to offer input because my input was sought out. So I think the end result certainly reflects, um, you know, my own perspective as well. Which is very heartening. And you can see that togetherness between yourself and the director, the producer and the writer. From Great Britain via Israel to the world. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now. It is amazing to hear that this is such a widespread issue and that you're bringing it to the fore to a mainstream audience with such sensitivity. And I think. The real life of detail goes a long way to achieving that, from the styrofoam wig stand on Estes dresser, on <laughs> Estes dresser, to the aluminium foil covering her family's kitchen. Of course, we are around the time of Pesach, Passover right now, and of course, the Yiddish spoken, and even, even Deborah, the Ashkenazi accent of the praying. I'm Ashkenazi, but the accent is quite different to the Ashkenazi accent that I was brought up with. Yes. Also, I mean, you know, the, the Satmars, uh, the, you know, they're from the border of Hungary and Romania. And, and one of the one of the ironies in the community is that although they're technically Ashkenazi, I don't know if you know this. This is something uh, uh, this is a reference only Jewish people might understand. But the prayer books are in the Nusach Svarad, right? It's in the so the, the prayer books are actually um, uh, structured in the Sephardi tradition. And we and they pray in the Sephardi tradition. Right. So the only people who actually pray in the, in the tradition of Ashkenaz are the German Jews, right? So the, the, the Eastern European Jews, many of them um, um, still hold on to the Sephardic traditions. And we know that so many of the, of the Hebrew texts and the Aramaic texts that inform the community's traditions and rituals are also from famous Sephardic rabbis. And we cannot forget the Shulchan Aruch, right? This is a, one of the most um, um, important text regarding Jewish law was written by a Sephardic rabbi um, who, you know, that, that forms the central tenet of, 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 of this community. So the, the Sephardic tradition has, has, plays a huge role um, in the Satmar world. And in that sense, when we say Ashkenazi, what we really mean is genetically Ashkenazi, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily mean, you know, the Ashkenazi Jewish uh, uh, rituals. Deborah, this is for a later part of the episode for those who've watched Unorthodox Okay. So I'm asking people who haven't seen Unorthodox on Netflix to just pause the tape right now and listen to this bit later. Okay. De Deborah, one of the most touching scenes, in fact, for me, um, the most painful, and this is from a man's perspective, and obviously it was uh, female-dominated, the production, the writing, of course, mm. was mm. when Yaakov declares to Esti that asking for a divorce was the worst mistake of his life, and he absolutely meant it, and he was asking for forgiveness and crying his eyes out, and he was so committed to having her back, he mm. even cut mm. his own payas off. Now, for me, I've never had payas, but I know exactly what that means, and Esti knew what it meant. 
She said it was too late. I, I regret that decision so badly, personally. It looked mm. like they could have led a mm. modern Orthodox life away from New York together. How do you feel about that decision that Esty made? You could have made the outcome a different one to your own. You well, could I mean, have made well, a happy is... ending. This is based on the truth right. um, in the sense that it, it, it is true that shortly before I got pregnant, um, my family presented me um, sort of collectively with a threat of divorce and, and that, you know, my husband at the time sort of agreed with that. He made it clear that he agreed with that. And that was very devastating for me and it completely destroyed whatever trust had been left uh, between us. And it is also true that uh, when I when I left my husband, there was a long period of time in which he tried to find a way back. Um, and he also at some point cut off his payas. And I think that we need to look at this moment when, when Yankee is cutting off his payas as something much bigger than an effort to win back his wife. Because what Yankee is essentially saying in this moment, what my ex-husband also said at the time was, I agree. I, I, I admit that this way of life actually didn't do much for me either. You know, and that I want to be as brave as you and make that cut. So it's it's so much bigger than a scene of reconciliation. It's also a scene in which we realize that Yankee, in his own way, has been coming to terms with the fact that he doesn't fit in as well into that world as he thought he did. And that it doesn't make him happy either. And that's exactly what happened in, in the real life story, which is that my ex-husband left the community of four years later. And today he's a very happily remarried man with a family, living a very free uh, life, um, and he has found his own path. And maybe the story is not about them needing to stay together, but more about them needing to have come together to realize this on their own and to find their own independent ways to happiness. That is an amazing extra dimension which wasn't explained in Unorthodox on Netflix you can watch it again and really feel it now, ladies and gentlemen. Watch that scene again, because uh, now it means something even more. Thank you for that, Deborah. Yes, of course. And I remember a full generation of people from my city in Birmingham who were brought up in uh, Yiddishkeit, in Judaism, long before the State of Israel's concept of pronunciation mm. over Ivrit mm. and therefore all over our Hebrew rite has sort of not crushed Ashkenazi tradition, but it's sort of limited it. Even in Ashkenazi shuls, you still get the now, you now get the Israeli pronunciations. And um, we talk about the pronunciation that's in the show. I'm telling you, the Birmingham accent, which was the accent of the Jewish people in Birmingham as we were sort of developing from the working class and sort of improving our lot, came up with specific Yiddish pronunciations in Birmingham. I'm going to pick a word out, right? And my, my teacher, uh, rest in peace, Louis Rosenberg, Baruch Dayan Emet, he said <laughs> the way I had to pronounce Kamish Pachot in uh, Ivrit, modern Ivrit, Kamish Pachot, but in Birmingham, we pronounce it Kamish Pechaus. Because, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're in wow. Birmingham and you're only mixing with 50 or 60 different people, that was how it worked, and that's what drew me to this pronunciation guide. You talk about the Sephardi traditions, but actually it's that Hungarian-Romanian thing. Um, well, it's actually, it's really interesting. So the Yiddish that you hear in the show is not a preserved Yiddish in the sense that you might have uh, experienced it. 
The Yiddish of the show is an actual living, breathing, changing contemporary Yiddish, which is why you have so many English words threaded into the conversation. Yes. And people mistakenly jump to the conclusion that the English words are there to fill in gaps you know, where Yiddish words are missing. But that is not the case. It's the case that because Yiddish uh, in the Hasidic community has been developing over the last 70 years in America, it has automatically done what Yiddish has always mm. done before. It has assumed the influence of the surrounding language the same way it did all over Eastern Europe, the way it absorbed Polish and Russian and Czech and Hungarian and, and Croatian and so on. And it has continued to take from the world around it, to, to, to sort of be a language of the present, to be a language of today. And in that sense, yes, of course, you have the original Hungarian influence, the pronunciation. This is why we do not have the A sound in the Hungarian Yiddish, only the I. Mm -hmm. We do not say, we do not say, oy vey, we say, oy vey, right? <laughs> Um, which is something, you know, that, re you know, re reveals me in, in Tel Aviv instantly as an ex-Haredi because I walk into Tel Aviv and I and I, I saw this, you know, napkin in a bar with a list of cocktails. And the, the way that cocktail is written in Hebrew letters, you know, with the two yods, uh, the two the two eyes, uh, I, as an ex-Satmer, immediately said, ha-koktailim. And they were like, what? What the? What the hell is up? Like, where do you come from? You know, <laughs> immediately I outed myself by not being able to say the A when I saw these two letters. Um, but so much of what you're hearing in the show is absolutely fresh and contemporary and is a tradition being created in the moment. Yes, it's wonderful. An evolving uh, community, uh, despite the sort of outward appearance being um, age old and very consistent through the generations. But tell me about the Satmar community. Uh, they are a post-Holocaust phenomenon, almost a response to the permissive Western society that emerged after World War II. Is that a fair comment, Deborah? That, yeah, that is, I think that is very accurate uh, and it's exactly what we wanted to explain um, because it's not known. It's not, it doesn't seem to be widely known that this is the case. Many people, even Jewish people, make the, the strange mistake of thinking that the Satmar community is some kind of a relic left over from this romanticized pre-war past. But in most senses, they're a brand new uh, community with That's a very amazing. new tradition, mm -hmm. right? Because they used to be this small little village with a rabbi and some followers and the Transylvanian border. But after the war, they became this sort of supranational phenomenon. Um, and, uh, you know, a community grew based on the ideology that the Holocaust had been a punishment, you know, which is a very different ideology from before the war. Of course, the Satmar rabbi was already preaching before the war, already in 1910, that God was going to punish the Jewish people for assimilation and emancipation and Zionism. But when the Holocaust happened, he basically saw it as proof and he doubled down and he gathered all of these survivors around him. And he said, you know, I predicted this and I can explain to you why it happened and I can give you a prescription for a life of atonement so that you can both compensate for the survivor's guilt, but also prevent another Holocaust from happening. A sort of radicalization that we've seen in Islam, but obviously with a very, very different but in, right, it's so interesting because it's a radicalization that stems from trauma, mm -hmm. which is which is something so complex and so difficult to unpack. Mm -hmm. But it also helps us understand, I think, in a wider cultural sense, how trauma can lead to radical uh, ways of living. 
precisely yes. because you know the resistance also to Zionism and yes. to this idea of of self liberation. Oh, I didn't Zionists like. I must just a personal thing there. Jeff spat on Zionism in the show. He went those Zionists yeah. and spat. Yeah. Ooh, that yeah. was. Uh, you didn't. You didn't have to put that one in, did you, Deborah? I, well, I, obviously, it wasn't my choice, but I do I do applaud their decision to do so because it's accurate and it's not focused on enough that within the Jewish world there are you know huge communities that reject the state of Israel and you know both in Israel and outside of Israel, mm. and I think that that is that is that is a truth that should not be overlooked. But they uh, are a minority, is, aren't they, Deborah? I, I disagree. You know, I disagree for various reasons. Um, I think they're considered a minority because we have always uh, preferred to think of religious extremists as not relevant or as not really representative. But it's dangerous to do so, in my opinion, precisely because they will become a majority in a sense that they will threaten our perspective on contemporary Jewish life. Because if you look at Israel and you look at how both the secular and the ultra-religious communities reproduce, and I say this because there really are just two poles in Israel, the religious community is reproducing at an alarmingly fast rate in comparison to the seculars, which means that it is a matter of time before they are the social and political majority. And I hate to break this to you, but that means that eventually we will no longer have our democracy in the East as we like to call it, but we will have the Jewish equivalent to the Sharia, which is halacha. So we will have a Jewish state that will be run by the religious majority. And that is simply unavoidable. And I find that the attitude of the Jewish world to that is that of the ostrich sticking its head in the sand, refusing to acknowledge the coming truth. How much more constructive would it be to face the truth head on, to seek dialogue and connection so as to build the future together than to pretend for as long as it works that these communities don't matter. And at some point within the majority religious community that you're predicting, there will be a new raging debate between those who are pro-Zionist and anti-Zionist because there are plenty of religious Zionist people. So I think that battle will come with inside the Orthodox community. And it is a battle that is not uh, too far off from the battle we see in the Islamic world today. I mean, I, I do think that that is the far off future of Judaism. Now, Deborah, from your own story, do you regret the decision to leave your community? I guess the answer to that is no, not at all. But you must hang on like to your hair on your shaitel wig. Uh, there must be some aspects of Hasidic life, Jewish life that um, that you miss. So it's, it's true that I personally have never regretted my decision, um, although it was very difficult to part from my grandmother. But as I explained it in my book, um, my grandmother was suffering from dementia already before I left the community. So it was like I had lost her already prior to that moment of exit. Um, and yet she was the one that I missed the most. Like if I ever think of, of missing something from my childhood, it's my grandmother. Um, and one of the things that I did after I left was also try to be close to her in different ways. And that was the reason I originally went to Europe to sort of research her life story but before she had joined this community and to find a way to, to feel closer to the woman she had been before. And that's also one of the reasons why it's so momentous for me to live in Europe, because I do feel like I'm close to the sort of potential that she had had or, you know, the woman she could have become in different circumstances. Mm -hmm. So one of the most tragic um, and, and crushing uh, parts of my experience after leaving the Satmar Hasidic sect was how much prejudice and discrimination I encountered 
in the wider Jewish world. Now, I don't mean to say this across the board, all Jewish people outside of the Satmar community um, mistreated me or looked down at me, but it was really shocking to me um, how little support and understanding I found in the Jewish world. And uh, instead, I... I was treated uh, with a lot of discrimination. And, and I think part of this has to do with a kind of weird inner Jewish classism, this idea that there is yes. this hierarchy in the Jewish world yes. and people who come from religious communities are automatically low class. Mm. And it is, it is assumed that we are ignorant and vulgar and so on. And I was told repeatedly, you know, from various different people in different communities to go back where I had come from, oh. to go back to the only place where I belonged. And this was really crushing. And this is one of the reasons why I think I sought out a, a city like Berlin, because what you see in the series is, yes, Esti's new friends are ignorant. They have no idea where she's coming from. But it is certainly preferable to encounter that ignorance than to encounter the prejudice, for example, of her Israeli friend, yes. Yael, who knows exactly where she's coming from and says to her effectively, you will never catch up. I know who you are. I know the community you come from. And I'm telling you, you'll never catch up. Whereas her friends simply don't know enough about her to say anything. And they give her all this space and all this freedom to sort of explore what she might want to be before telling her, by the way, it's impossible. You're completely naive. And I thought that Anna and Alexa did an amazing job in that one scenario to really illustrate the shocking difficulty that ex-Hasidic people have trying to find a new way to belong in the Jewish community. Yes, it was answered very quickly across the kitchen table when Yael said, oh no, we don't worry about the Holocaust. We've got our own battles to fight in Israel these days. That hurt me personally. The other thing also that I really, really detest is prejudice between Jewish people, racism between Jewish people. Um, like I mentioned, I'm from a small uh, Jewish community in a massive city in Birmingham in England. It's, um, it's a very, very unusual place because there are, you know, a million people in the city and there's another million people around the concentric circle and the community was only 5,000 people and what I observed as I was growing up was that we grew up around religious people they were Chabadniks and they were religious people from the Haim from Galicia which is my background and mm. so when I saw an orthodox I related to the Jewish uh, Melia, because I feel like those people, the fact that I shave and I was never brought up ultra-Orthodox actually makes no difference. I am yeah. exactly the same person uh, uh, as the Satmar. You know, whether they think so or not is another matter, I but I know I am. Understand. I, I am. understand. I completely understand that. I think that really, that you know, it's, it, it can't be overlooked that inside the Jewish world we have this concept of, of habitus, as, as Alain uh, Bourdieu um, perpetuated it. It's um, this, this idea that we cannot shake off our origins, regardless of how much we try, and that our bodies, you know, our language um, reveals so much about who we are um, and that, that we are not in control of. And I, and I completely understand what you're describing. I was privileged to come home from Israel. Oh, that's a funny thing to say. I'll start again. <laughs> I was privileged to return from Israel to the UK, uh, where I live, and I sat in the middle of the Bobov community, who were, the, of course, mm. um, like the extended family of the Satmar in a way, a very, very similar yes. organization. Yes. They have the rabbis uh, are cousins. Yes, not surprising. And they were from Stamford Hill in London, these guys, and they spoke, of course, a Yiddish. And as they were rattling away in, uh, in Yiddish, I understood a lot of what they were saying. 
And they said to me, returning from Israel, that they weren't anti-Israel, that they were pro-Israel, that they supported the Jewish state. And so uh, the Mm. Boboff community, who are almost exactly the same as Satmar, um, oh, this is very interesting. Yes, um, this is interesting that you say this. Because they had strimals, they had payas, they talk mm. Yiddish. Correct. Uh, they, 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 they live in the same areas of London and New York City as the Satmar. But I asked and them. And yet. Tell me. And yet, Johnny, and yet, Bobov and Satmar, uh, you know, are members or, or sort of have been fighting an age-old feud. Because exactly they're Jews. Exactly exactly about this about zionism so Bobov and satmar although they are genetically related and their rabbis are cousins um they have declared each other enemies because of their disagreement uh, about the state of israel and there is no uh, there is practically no intermarriage between the two sects because mm. of this gosh um, he who fights so, yeah. with man and god but who prevails um, yes <laughs> I, I, I still think uh, zionism will win over in this battle uh, despite I what wonder. the Satmar yeah. position is. Well, I mean, it's not about Zionism winning. It's about what form of Zionism wins, yeah, right? Because okay. there's so many different ways to be Zionist. And today, being Zionist has very little in common with what it meant for uh, for Herzl to be a Zionist, right? Mm. I mean, the Zionist mm-hmm. dream has changed dramatically. But it was always going to. Jabotinsky talked about, uh, you know, the Israel that was in the future to be formed and uh, what Zionism will look like once it's formed. It's it's a moving project as such, isn't it? And of course, what's that very famous old saying that, uh, you know, uh, one of the great strengths of Israel is that we haven't got anywhere else to run away from. But, you know, honestly, Johnny, religious Zionism... Is, is for me, it's a nightmare. You know, the Zionism that I was ever able to identify with was the very early form of Zionism, a very pluralist form. And Zionism today is, is just not recognizable and it's not a, a movement that, that I or people like myself can find themselves in. Yes, in order for Israel to succeed, it needs to be culturally pluralistic. I think that's one of the most important things uh, that we need to hold on to. Are you still in touch with some of the Satmar community on in a secret way or in a more open way now that you're so visible, Deborah? Um, I'm actually only in touch with other people who've left or, or right. in the process of right. leaving. I mean, because otherwise the walls are pretty thick. Yeah. Deborah, how do you raise your Jewish child in Berlin? Is it inside uh, the Jewish faith, inside Yiddishkeit, inside, I don't know, modern Orthodox? Or, or you know, how do you, how do you raise your child as a Jewess or a Jew? Well, certainly I, I don't impose any categories, uh, you know, on our, on our spiritual life. I mean, my son is going to school in Berlin uh, since he's been in the third grade. And I think you might know this um, um, in Germany and in Europe in general, it is, it is um, traditional to offer religious uh, um, instruction in the public schools but you're offered you're you're just offered a choice like in most german schools the choices is just between catholic and protestant but because my son was attending a school in which there was a large enough jewish student body the jewish the local jewish community offered a uh, religious instruction in judaism as well and what i found very interesting was there were also non-jewish children who freely chose to attend this class wow. as well um in that sense, uh, Berlin has a large Jewish community that is very diverse and very um, independent and also, I would say, modern in its way of rethinking its identity because the community is also very, very fresh. It's received an infusion in the last two decades from all over the world. And 
so I would say that my life in Berlin is on the one hand, it's very Jewish. I have a large circle of Jewish friends from various different backgrounds and it's very colorful and it's, um, it's very dynamic. But at the same time, we also have, you know, our Berlin circle of friends, which is mixed, you know, with all kinds of religious backgrounds and also many atheists and people with different nationalities. So I think the most accurate way to describe the way I'm raising my son is a kind of openness and I'm kind of showing him all the options showing him that the world is a big place and that there is room for a lot of different belief systems and a lot of different lifestyles. And I'm not excluding the Jewish one, but I'm also not prioritizing it. I'm sort of allowing him to decide how he wants to find himself in the context of all that. And I would say, you know, it looks like he's doing very well, but he's 14. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> see how we go. And he had his permits for last year. So we gave him the option, but he decided to simply just have a nice party, which is what most um, sort of secular Jewish people in Berlin do as well, because the effort involved in studying for that, you know, reading aloud of the Torah portion was something at the end he didn't want to commit to. And I certainly didn't want to force him to. So we just sort of celebrated it as a very important birthday. I have some experience of the Berlin Jewish community from the Soviet infusion of the late 80s mm. and early 90s. and. Yes. What was so interesting about it was that there are a number of young Jewish women now born of Soviet uh, mothers who were thrust into uh, Berlin as refuseniks, battered and bruised, without much of a, a Jewish education, because, of course, the Soviets wouldn't allow it. And what I found um, sad and even disgraceful in a way because I think my own grandparents experienced this when they first came to Birmingham was that they were shunned by the wider mm. community and many of the Soviet women had married local German men so that the, mm. the girls who grew up and are now in their early 20s and now 30s are uh, Jewish mm. on their mother's side, and therefore Jewish, of course, fully Jewish, have returned mm. uh, to the Jewish community, have married Jewish men. Um, but yeah. it was a real sign, Deborah, mm. of um, people looking down on these Soviet Jews. Who are they? Are they Jewish? They don't know much. And um, shunned into yeah, a sort of deliberate is... life. It's awful. I, I'm really, I'm horrified by it. But I of course, my grandma said the same thing. My grandma yeah, said the no. same thing when she came from Vienna to Birmingham. This, this phenomenon is as old as time and it mirrors, uh, you know, a general phenomenon in the West. I mean, there's this incredible essay from Joseph Roth um, called Wandering Jews, where he um, writes a kind of jacuzzi to, to German uh, Jewish people uh, for looking down on their Eastern European counterparts mm. and for rejecting mm. them. Mm -mm. And this is ugly. And this goes back to what we've discussed earlier about, you know, racism within the Jewish community, because how can we go out into the wider world and, and talk about anti-Semitism and expect to find understanding and sympathy about anti-Semitism when we cannot solve, you know, corresponding problems within our own community? Now, um, I want to just ask you something about your appearances on TV in Germany, where you're becoming a bit of a celebrity. Um, is it true that you said, what bothers me is that the conversation about being Jewish is being conducted dishonestly on our part, that we never admit that we're a privileged minority, that we can always use anti-Semitism as a truncheon and thus suppress unpleasant opinions? Deborah. Mm. 
This is yes. a very, very so what I said difficult was in response to in response to an interview um, where the interviewer asked me how I was connecting to the local Jewish community, and I said that I feel the local Jewish community, which is in charge of the of the intercommunal uh, dialogue in Germany is not uh, taking a sincere approach because, and I think that is, can also be explained the same way we explained it in the series with trauma. So the, the, the local, you know, old traditional Jewish community of Berlin is a very traumatized community, a community that still very much remembers all of these old wounds, you know, and, and in that sense, they, they haven't really caught up to the present in the way, for example, that the main character in Unorthodox wants to. In that way, they're very comparable to the community that I come from. And so you have this problem here where anti-Semitism is a central topic. It's constantly on the table but not in such a way that we can see any progress being made from either side. You have this feeling that the conversation is petrified and that this is something the community sees to be in its interest. And I'll give you just an example, because at the time that I had given this interview, it was very shortly after an occurrence um, that made the international news, and that it was at the same time that we had a neo-Nazi murdering someone in, uh, in, at a protest, I think it was Charlottesville, Yes. And that same weekend, um, a sign in a hotel in Switzerland went viral. And this sign was addressed to religious Jews who used the hotel in Switzerland as a vacation uh, uh, location. And it was uh, addressed in German uh, and in English. And it was telling Jews to please shower before they use the swimming pool because they weren't doing so. And this was uncomfortable for the other guests. Now, I understand uh, why religious Jews don't do that because most religious Jews uh, perform their hygienic rituals in the ritual bath. My grandfather never took a shower in his life. Younger Jewish people do that. But, you know, the traditional Jews d- don't see the bathroom as something that they would use to, to clean themselves. They, you know, they always clean themselves in the ritual bath. And in the case of Switzerland, they were probably going into the river to do so. But this sign uh, went viral all over the world because it echoed um, the, you know, the story of Jews having to shower before they went into the gas chambers. And it was it was it was held up as this ultimate um, proof of of the anti-Semitism in the German uh, language community. But what was crazy was, you know, the, the religious Jewish people who themselves kept returning to this hotel every year were trying to speak up and say, we know this woman. We've been coming there for years. She's anything if, you know, if anti-Semite, this is, was not anti-Semitic. This was a woman running a hotel, trying to keep all her guests happy, trying to accommodate her religious ones. I mean, and really she, you know, went, once you looked into the history of the story, she had been so accommodating toward them. But at the same time, she didn't want to lose her non-Jewish guests who were irritated by the fact that they were constantly being an exception to the rules. And so what happened was you had Jewish people all over the world attacking this one individual woman who had made an unfortunate mistake. And of course you had the German Jewish community up in arms. This is proof what we've been saying all along. You know, everybody who's not Jewish is just a Nazi. And you feel that there is this there's this investment in the constant polarization of the discussion that we have to be enemies forever and we have to distrust each other forever. And people in my generation, in my peer group, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, we'd like to someday be able to hope and believe that the discussion around anti-Semitism will be sincere, with a sincere desire for reconciliation and for healing. But at the moment, it just doesn't feel that way. 
the problem with that, Deborah, is that people who are blatant arch enemies of the Jewish people in this country, like, for example, Chris Williamson, who was expelled, who is before our eyes turning into a national socialist, and that is mm. not an exaggeration. Oh, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just say saying it's exactly a mistake to put these the, people in the same it, boat with people who make innocent mistakes. But it would be, it, he would say exactly those things. We're being silenced by the Holocaust. That, That's the problem here. Someone you disagree with saying something that you would say doesn't mean that the opinion cannot, you know, be grounded in fact. I... I have no desire to lend support to blatant arch enemies of the Jewish people, but not every single person out there in the outside world is an arch enemy of the Jewish people. And we need to be able to make these distinctions because we need the support and the cooperation of these people to fight actual anti-Semitism. But my experience, especially in Berlin, has been that anyone who sincerely wants to help is rejected. And my, like I said, my, the, the, the desire of my generation is to work together, to heal together, because we would like to have an ideal to hope for. We don't want to believe that the world that was is the world that is to come. We want to believe in change, but you can only believe in change if you're willing to work toward it. Deborah Feldman, thank you very, very much for your time here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. Deborah, that was profound. Yeah, that was intense, yeah. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show. 